Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope you all had a great weekend. I made it home on Friday from the East Coast, so now I'm home for this week before heading out again next week to San Antonio. I absolutely loved my time in Moncton, New Brunswick. Just a rewarding couple of days of work, but also the opportunity to soak up so much of that East Coast atmosphere. I love where I live, and I really am a West Coast guy through and through. But there is just something special about Atlantic Canada. I have to say, I've been to three of the four provinces, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and now New Brunswick. I've not been to Prince Edward Island, but I am never disappointed by the people, the food, the energy, all of it. If you ever have a chance to go, don't hesitate. You'll not be disappointed. But maybe don't go in the winter or even the early spring. Go when the weather is nicer uh, so you can be outside a little bit more. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. A reminder that there's still time to register for one of the upcoming events this spring or summer. Next week is the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training in San Antonio, April 25th and 26th. We've got standards-based learning in action, two days also in San Antonio, April 27th and 28th. And the annual conference on assessment and grading happening in Austin, Texas, July 18th through 20th. Again, that's going to be myself, Cassandra Erkins, Angie Fries, Garnet Hillman, Tony Reibel, Mandy Stalitz, and Katie White. All of the information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website. Of course, I have links in the show notes for them as well. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a huge thank you to longtime listeners. I really do appreciate you. This week, my guest is Morgan Michael. Morgan is the author of the book, From Burnt Out to Fired Up, Reigniting Your Passion for Teaching. So we're going to focus on that topic of burnout and how we can maintain our balance and our passion for our profession. And in Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to talk about why scaling or rating learning targets is instructionally unnecessary and can actually serve as a distraction to what matters the most. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Morgan Michael is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I'm going to open this week by confronting any and all adults associated with advanced placement courses in high schools around the world and ask you, why do you continue to perpetuate this frenzy around AP? Now, I know this doesn't affect all schools. And I know there's a difference between some of the schools in Canada and the United States and around the world. But this has been something that's been on my mind for quite a while now. And I think it's something that needs to be addressed. And to be clear, this open is not about AP. Now, that could be a rant for another day in terms of the workload, the content-heavy, almost regressive approach to education in some cases. It's the 21st century, people. It's time we finally got away from this memorize-everything, content-heavy approach to education. AP has been run by the College Board since 1955. Now, clearly, it was a different era back then, certainly a pre-technology era, if you will. So modernizing the curriculum of AP should certainly be open for discussion. And in my work with schools who are trying to transform their assessment and grading practices, the existence of AP is often used as an excuse, or at least try to use it as an excuse, as as to why the school can't move to standards-based grading. Oh, we can't do that, Tom, because we have AP courses. They're so content-heavy. Yeah, that sounds like an awesome 21st century learning experience. Cue the eye roll, hashtag sarcasm. Look, we can talk about all of that another time. My issue today is how, given all that we are aware of with mental health and the stress and pressure and anxiety that young people feel nowadays, which of course has been magnified during the pandemic, how any adult, 
And I'm talking teachers, administrators, superintendents, parents, how any of you can continue to allow students to overload their schedules with AP courses. Well, I'll tell you how. Ego. The mileage adults gain on the backs of students, their children, from AP stats is exactly why this continues. And if you allow it to continue, I, for one, for, will not take you seriously for one second when you talk about how concerned you are for your students' mental well-being. How do you imagine you have an ounce of credibility talking about your concern for student mental health when you simultaneously, directly or indirectly, encourage students to overload their schedules to a ridiculous degree? Now, AP courses are, of course, for college credit, so the rigor should be higher than that of a high school course. We, we get that. So let's just say that an AP class is like a first-year university course, okay? Let's, obviously, that's what they're getting college credit for. Do any first-year university students take seven or eight classes at the same time? Not to mention the fact that university students don't spend near as much time in class as high school students do. So we want our students to play sports. We want them to volunteer. We want them to join clubs. We want them to be well-rounded. But then we also want them to overload their schedules with AP courses so the adults can ride the coattails of the students' achievements. Now let's start with parents. Parents will not waste any opportunity to brag about how many AP courses their kids are taking. And they also push this because they want their child to strive to be valedictorian for the graduating class. So they have to get a 4.7 GPA or whatever just to be graduating number one in their class. Now, this is particularly an issue in the United States schools, of course, and some overseas U.S. schools, because in all of my years working in high schools in Canada, we never chose our valedictorian from any kind of class rank. It had nothing to do with GPA. The graduating class itself voted on who they wanted to speak on their behalf at graduation. That's a valedictorian. It comes from the Latin valedicere. I, th I think that's how you pronounce it, which means to say farewell. The valedictory is a farewell address made by the person chosen by the graduating class to speak on their behalf. How it became about GPA or class rank is beyond me. Why do parents push this? Yes, they want their children to achieve, but it's also about feeding the ego. To see your kids grind out these accomplishments just so you can let everybody know that you genetically produce that. And even if your kids are not biologically yours, it's, you know, like winning parenting so that you can feed your ego about how you really were the mastermind behind their accomplishments. We just need to tone this down because the stress and anxiety that so many kids are under these days is unacceptable. But parents aren't the only reason this occurs. Universities are also the reason this occurs. So in defense of the parents, the colleges and the universities also contribute to this. Again, this is where some of the differences between Canada and the United States exist. In Canada, our top universities often accept and enroll the most students. You take, for example, the University of Toronto has roughly 62,000 students. University of British Columbia, 67,000 students. Waterloo, about 40,000 students. McGill, 40,000 students. The University of Toronto, which is often ranked very high, if not near the top of Canadian universities, has a 45% acceptance rate. Now, this is all in the context of a country, Canada, that has the same population as California. So our largest schools are often our highest ranked schools, 
and we accept the most students. In the United States, there is a frenzy that surrounds being accepted into the so-called top schools. They restrict access by creating a scarcity model. Therefore, families understand that you've got to have a GPA as high as possible to even have a chance of getting into those schools. The universities themselves brag about their low admission rates. Now, this is something I learned uh, also from Scott Galloway. I, you know, I mentioned Scott Galloway a few weeks ago. He's the New York University business professor and podcast host. And he's talked a lot about this issue. And it's really opened my eyes to the university model in the United States. And it certainly influenced a little bit of my perspective on that. You look at Harvard, for example, a 5% acceptance rate. MIT has a 7% acceptance rate. UCLA has a 14% acceptance rate, which sounds a little bit better, but UCLA is the school in the United States that receives the most applications every year. They receive over 100,000 applications every single year. University of California at Berkeley, widely considered the most prestigious public university in the world, 17.5% acceptance rate. So the scarcity of access to higher education in the United States creates this sense of panic that students and families are almost forced to buy into if they even want a chance to get into any of these schools. It's not a birthright to attend the university of your choice, but what if every college and university across the United States increased its enrollment by, say, 20% or between 20 and 50%? How would that change things? Oh, but we can't have that, right? Because then our schools wouldn't be seen as elite anymore, now would they? We wouldn't be able to brag about how many students we turned down as a sort of badge of honor. We wouldn't be able to tell everybody where we graduated from, so we get that kind of social mileage or prestige from it. And again, I don't see the issue being nearly as bad in Canada, and therefore we don't have the same kind of frenzy around university. Not everyone in Canada gets to attend their first choice university either, but it's still not the same kind of panic. But all the more reason to stop allowing students to overload their schedules with AP classes because it really is less necessary. So while I'm frustrated with the way parents handle AP, I do understand that the universities have contributed to this frenzy. And now schools, K-12 schools or high schools, I should say, you're not off the hook either. Principals, teachers, superintendents, using the ratio of AP classes taken and your AP results as a way of boasting about your level of excellence is also a bunch of bullshit. If those are the metrics you use, then you're going to want to keep those up, aren't you? You're going to want to be, you're not going to be happy when the number of AP classes starts to slip. So you're going to encourage students, maybe push them a little bit, talk about excellence and striving and all those code words that we use, all you so you can maintain this manufactured image, so you can prance around in your sweater vests and power suits pretending that somehow you're university level educators. Here's an idea. If you're serious about student mental health and creating a well-rounded high school experience, why not just limit the number of AP courses students can take? Simple. Everyone knows that overloading a schedule with AP classes is not healthy. It's not healthy mentally, emotionally, even physically, in terms of, say, the potential loss of sleep, students pulling all-nighters, etc. It's not good. Parents know it. Colleges know it. Schools know it. We all know it. And yet we do nothing to stop it. Well, Tom, what if the students want to take all of those AP classes? What's well, simple? Don't let them. It's not in their best interest. For many, it will ruin their senior year of high school. And my guess, and this is purely a guess, 
My guess is that if you actually asked the students in a vacuum whether they wanted to take all of those AP classes, they would overwhelmingly say no. Would they want to take some? Probably. But six or seven or eight? No chance. Ask them why they do, and I'd be willing to wager that you're going to get some very predictable answers. Why do you take six or seven AP classes? Well, my parents. Why do you take six or seven AP classes? I need them to get into university. Why do you take six or seven AP classes? I want to be valedictorian. This is a very real issue entirely caused by adults that students now pay the price for. And there are some very simple fixes for this, but from where I sit, I don't see many adults wanting to truly rally this cause because there is, in their minds, too much to lose by imposing a restriction. Well, we can't impose a restriction, Tom. The kids have a right to take as many AP classes as they want to. We can't restrict them. That's a cop-out, and you know it. Here's what I know. If the harm being caused by overloading student schedules with AP classes was primarily and directly physical, we wouldn't think twice about stepping in. Now, I know this is going to sound absurd and silly, but just hear me out, okay? Just, just hear me out. If for every AP class beyond, say, four that a student enrolls in, it would result in a broken appendage, we'd stop them at four. Now, I know that sounds silly. I get it. You can take four. Enroll in a fifth, and your arm is broken. A sixth, it's the other arm. You okay with that? Obviously not. But why when it's mental? Why when it's emotional? Are we just allowing it to occur? Because our students' mental well-being is often invisible, we send these subtle messages to suck it up, grind it out, and they often don't say anything until it all unravels for them, or completely unravels, and sometimes it's too late. If you have anything to do with AP, school, parent, whatever, and you continue to perpetuate this frenzy about AP and college credit and GPAs, then any assertions you make about the need to care for your students, your child's mental well-being, is nothing but an act. You're full of it. Have the courage to do the right thing, and stop pouring gasoline on this already out-of-control fire by setting limits on the number of AP classes any student can take. Parents, you discourage the overloading of schedules in service of finding a truly balanced experience where every so often a student might actually have some time to be bored. They don't have to be busy 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. A little downtime goes a long way to all of us finding balance but especially for young people who need the adults in their lives to truly watch out for them and what's in their best interests. Now, I know we live in an era of student-centered and student-driven and all of that, but this is a situation where the adults need to step in, put our money where our mouths are, and say enough is enough. We are no longer going to fan the flames of the unhealthy atmosphere that surrounds some schools' approach to advanced placement.
Joining me this week is Morgan Michael. Morgan has been an elementary school teacher in the Greater Victoria School District in BC since 2008. She is a passionate advocate for social emotional learning, kindness education, and educator well-being as evidenced by the fact that she leads professional development initiatives aligned with all of those efforts. In 2018, Morgan launched, launched her podcast, Kindsight 101, where she's interviewed some of the world's biggest names in education on topics of kindness, well-being, self-compassion, and the promotion of a positive school culture. She is also the creator and founder of Small Act, Big Impact, the 21-Day Kindness Challenge, which seeks to promote and cultivate safe and supportive school cultures. She also shares insights from her podcast on her blog spot, Small Act, Big Impact, and most important, she is a busy woman, most important, for our conversation today, Morgan is the author of the recently released book, From Burnt Out to Fired Up, Reigniting Your Passion for Teaching. Morgan, that is quite a schedule you keep and quite a lot going on. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I, I'm really enjoying the book, full disclosure. I haven't quite finished the book yet, but I, I, love, I love the book, and I think the topic is so timely. Um, I think the topic is always timely. You know, bur burnout has been a topic that we've always talked about through throughout my 31 years in education, burnout has always been a talk, topic that is kind of festered beneath the surface of everything that we're doing. But I'm really excited to have you here to kind of give us some insight as to how we can manage ourselves as we, you know, in, in this particular era now, sort of not totally post COVID, but we are certainly feeling the ramifications of all that. So let's, let's just start with a big question here. Let's begin with what inspired you to write the book? You know, we know that, as I mentioned earlier, that burnout is a timeless phenomenon in education, but why, from your perspective, do you think, as I said, this topic is so timely today? Yeah, well, thanks for that question. I think we know that in education right now, there's a lot of shift and change. Part of it is because of the pandemic. Some of it is sort of some of the structural changes in schools. I think teachers, educators are feeling pretty stretched right now, I think for a number of different reasons. And some of those are environmental, but some of them are also just personal things that are coming up for us. And so really burnout just comes down to the fact that we have these process or these unprocessed emotions and we're sort of tunneling through and we don't really have a chance to get to the other side very easily. And we use all these maladaptive strategies to kind of get through it. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think as educators, we have to remember why we first got into teaching, what drew us to the profession, because I think when we are in this place of anxiety and this feeling of burnout where we just don't want to get up in the morning or we just, we'd rather call in sick, um, that we lose sight of what it is that first got us into education. And so I just want to tell you about one of the reasons that I got into education and the fact that this book really ties back to that wholeheartedness that we can be as teachers, this, this amazing inspirational force in students' lives. And if we're not intentional about it, that we can lose sight of that. So back in high school, I had a an educator that that changed the whole trajectory of my life. His name was Mr. Graham, and he was a drama teacher at my high school. And our high school went from grade eight to grade 12. And I remember walking into his annex. It was kind of this, this separate building on my, on my high school campus and feeling this immense sort of fear and trepidation walking in. And I remember him, he was kind of, he was this character, right? He spoke in British accents. He, he had metaphors that he would throw out to us all the time. He had these brocade vests that he had custom made. He was a real character. He was very unorthodox. And I remember walking in that first day of eighth grade and he announced to us prophetically that we were all going to learn to juggle and that we'd learn to uh, memorize the road not taken by Robert Frost and then 
perform the two simultaneously in front of our peers. Like all of us were about ready to die and just dive right out of that room because we're like, this is insane. And it is kind of crazy to ask teens to do that, right? At the most vulnerable time in their life. But somehow he got us to do this. And and despite sort of our own trepidation and fear around it, he always told us to, to give it a shot. He said, you could take the zero or you can try. And if you fail, fail gloriously. And that tagline has stayed in my mind forever because, you know, we want to, we want to give life our best shot. Right. So we would perform these, these things and we did well in the end. And Mr. Graham was, was a tremendous influence on my life. Just generally, I, you know, didn't have an easy home life growing up. And he would just find this way of making us feel seen and heard uh, whenever we set foot in his space. And I think that's what good teachers do, right? They make space for for the kids that they teach and for their families. And and that's the humanity that kind of pours into teaching. And uh, I remember one particular day, uh, you know, this was 11th grade at this point. So I had my driver's license and this is very unorthodox and certainly probably would not go well these days. But I remember kind of just walking into into the annex and he stopped me and he said, Morgan, I can just see that you're not, you're not feeling right right now. You know, I just felt kind of down and he, he handed, he put his hand out with the keys to his vehicle and he said, just go take a loop of the school and then come back when you're ready to sort of settle in. And it was funny because I think we do that as educators. We we give space for our students to kind of process their emotions and and go through the tough stuff. And although that was a very unusual way to do it, it, it gave me the chance to clear my head and then come back when I was ready. By the time grade 12 hit, I was, you know, really thankful for a handful of teachers. And so I decided to write them letters. And of course, Mr. Graham was at the very top of the list. And I don't remember exactly what I put in that letter to him, but I know that I poured my heart out to him. We ended up, you know, remaining friends after graduation. We'd go for coffee, go for walks. And then one day, several years later, he called me up kind of out of the blue and he said, I have some bad news. And this, yeah, it just gives me chills, you know, thinking about it. Um, and he, he said, you know, I'm, I'm sick. I've got terminal cancer and I don't have long. And so, you know, we continued sort of maintaining contact. And then, and then another day he, he called again and, and said, I, I'm going to need you to come over. And I knew that would be the last time I'd see him. And so I remember walking um, up to his house, knocking on the door, and his wife opened, opened the door, and, and I started walking down the hallway. And just before I went into his room, hanging on the wall was my letter framed. And yeah, and... I think what that moment really taught me is that he had definitely had an impact on my life. This I knew for sure, but I hadn't realized that my own influence on his life had meant something to him too. And I think that is the beauty of teaching is that it can be reciprocal and we can teach so much to our students, but we can't do it if we're burnt out. We have to be able to kind of fulfill our our own passions and our, you know, desire to sort of infuse that sense of inspiration into our, into our practice. Right. And so we need to take care of ourselves and we need to tune into that passion ourselves. And that's what this book is about. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. I mean, that is a fantastic story. It's a beautiful story and it really does illustrate uh, the impact that teachers can have. But Morgan, I think you buried the lead here. Uh, Your teacher gave you the keys to his car to go for a drive. (laughs) I know. know. When was this? What year was it? What kind of car was it? We need details. (laughs) 
would this have been? 1998? <laughs> no, this is so, in 19, what, 2000? I don't know. A while ago. Yeah, you so, weren't supposed yeah. to do that back then either. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> like I said, he was unorthodox. So we have yeah, to find these yeah. special ways. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what kind of car was it? I think it was like, I don't even know, like some kind of a, I don't know, like a little car. I, I can't yeah, even remember. Be... Yeah. A oh, little please one. tell me it was a Miata or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Convertible. A Mustang, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Just to fit the cliche uh, yeah. of the, the drama teacher. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. Um, this, you know, I think the book uh, just has so many great examples in there and so many great analogies and it's very research-based. So why don't we start with an overarching view? Let's, let's, let's start with the, uh, the five R framework that you talk about in the book, and then we're going to dig into some specific topics. So maybe sure. just highlight for listeners, what is the five R framework and, and, and sort of, give that overarching view of it. And then we're going to dig into some specificity around that. You bet. So essentially, I, I, when I was coming up with the framework for the book, I thought about my own journey. And, you know, I've had different moments. I'm, I'm a mom. I got young kids. I've had moments after, you know, when, when I was in the trenches, when one was a newborn and one was a toddler, and you just kind of feel like you lose yourself. So I think I think teaching can be like that too. So I was thinking like, what makes sense? And so I think the, the first step was about reflecting. So first getting in tune with who you are, and how it is that you're feeling. And lots of really easy ways to do that, but it doesn't have to take a long time. It can be the simple question of like, what am I feeling right now? Where am I feeling it in my body? And what do I need? You know, that sort of question of just tuning in. And the next piece is once you know where, where you're at, then you can kind of go, okay, what are some, which is reframed. So what are some unhelpful stories or narratives that I'm telling myself that are maladaptive, that don't help me, that I can now reframe and not in a, you know, not in a uh, rose-colored glasses kind of way, but kind of go like, how does this story suit me right now? Yeah, maybe life is hard or I'm not teaching the grade I want to be teaching, but like, how can I actually acknowledge some of the wonderful things that are happening in my life and then focus on some of those great things? So that's the reframe element, which is about resiliency. And then we get to, so we've looked at the past, we're sort of tuning into the present. Now we're looking to refocus. We're looking toward the future because I think a big part of our happiness comes from the meaning that we make from life, right? So if we're able to refocus our life in the general trajectory that we want, like the life that we want, that's a beautiful thing. And so once you've had a chance to do that, then you get to the reconnect part, which is about, you know, they say uh, that that the, the single biggest factor in your overall life trajectory, like your, your ability to, to live a long, healthy life comes down to your social connections. And so that connecting piece with intention, surrounding yourself with people who lift you up, that's important. And so that's what that chapter is about. How do you elevate those social connections and then reveal, which is about now that you got this package, you know, the past, you know, where you're at present, you know, where you're headed and you've got people around you who love and care about you. How do you reveal that like humanity within you, which, which I talk about as creativity, but really it's about just human expression. Like how do you express yourself as a human being and, and how are you proud of the trail that you're leaving behind? So that's, right. that's sort of that intentionality and it ties it all together. So that's the essence of the book. Yeah, no, I, I love the framework and I love <laughs> the way that you just uh, purposefully sort of lead readers through uh all of the different, uh, like I said, there's act, there's activities, there's suggestions, there's strategies. I think a, a really great framework and, and one really uh, sort of tangible, usable, accessible to teachers. Uh, so I want to dig into a couple of really uh, important topics that I think caught my attention uh, as, as I was reading the book. In chapter one, the, the chapter on reflection, you shine a spotlight on something I'd never heard before uh, called empathetic distress. Um, so what is that and why is it so important that teachers 
be aware of how that manifests. Yeah. Well, this actually came from a Buddhist teacher named Joan Halifax. And so essentially empathic distress is about when you are taking on the world's problems to the point that you almost feel like you need to shut yourself away because it becomes too much. It's kind of that desire to withdraw from it because the weight and the space that you hold for people around you is so heavy. And I think as educators, we do that all the time. We do that for our families. You know, when they're going through tough time, we carry some of that weight and it has an impact on our hearts, right? And and I think, you know, it keeps us up at night or, or we don't quite know the solution or we don't feel like we can fix it. And sometimes... Sometimes we're sold the story that that it's our job to fix to fix these traumas or fix some of these things, and we can't always fix it. All that we can do is sort of show up and be loving and 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 do what we can, right? But I think the the idea behind empathic distress is that it's kind of the self oriented carrying of the weight of other people's struggles, and so it can lead to burnout because when you're in that cycle again, it's that unprocessed sort of. Um, heartache, right? And if you can't get through it, um, that you kind of live there and then it can feel really heavy and it can result in all sorts of different things, like just, you know, the symptoms of depression and anxiety and all these things. And so that's part of why reflecting is so important so that you can pull those feelings out, um, no matter what's going on in, in your classroom and no matter the secondary trauma that's happening, because we do get that secondary trauma when we have students who disclose trauma, you know, and, and it's everywhere. So that's kind of the weight of it, um, essentially. Yeah. What what is the answer to that though? Because we know that empathy is so important to teaching that you you can't be an effective teacher without having empathy, and yet you want to be careful that you're not almost to a, to a fault being so empathetic that it's that's causing you distress. So where's that line, or what are some strategies that we might do, or or even in reflection, how do I know that I've kind of crossed that line where it's now harmful to me that I'm mm-hmm. I'm almost being too empathetic to my to the, to my students or to my surroundings or to what's happening in the world. Yeah. And I think there's, um, we, there's a lot of different things that you can do, but I think, um, I love this idea that Michelle Borbuck brought up, which is this, this concept of latent empathy does no good. And so within that concept is this idea that you can feel, feel sadness or you can feel alongside somebody in compassion and empathy. But if you don't take that and do something with it, then you sort of just sit in it and then it can Mm -hmm. definitely lead to a sense of burnout. And so we talk about this idea of like, like that, that empathy is sort of understanding what someone's going through. The compassion is like feeling with, and then the kindness pieces. And, and I don't mean this in a kindergarten variety of kindness, but the action behind the compassion and empathy, like, what are you doing about that? When you watch the news at night, is there an action that you can take that kind of can alleviate some of that? Because that's what will sort of take the, the, pressure off of that, that empathic distress is some kind of action that, that will alleviate that or something that you do either physically, like even if it's not related to that particular issue, go out for a walk, go talk to a friend, um, get your body moving, you know, get work through that a little bit so that it's not sitting in your body because that's what's so corrosive and can lead to burnout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's something that I love that part, uh, the idea of action, because it's easy to have, I, I wouldn't say it's easy, but, but it's simpler to have empathy, simpler to have compassion, but it's the action behind that, that I love that expression that latent empathy and compassion is really kind of pointless or useless if yeah. you're not going to, to act upon that. Now the chapter on reframing really spoke to me. Um, 
because I've always been a big believer. Oh, I should say always, but for a long part of my life, I've been a big believer that, you know, our thoughts drive our emotions and our actions. And that even though many aspects of our personal and professional lives can feel like they're out of control, the one thing we always have control over is how we think and what we think. And However, you in the chapter, you talk about this idea. So the reframing is one thing, but but you talk about the idea of toxic positivity, mm-hmm. right? You talk about this idea mm-hmm. that, um, you know, how, how, so how do we know whether or not our positivity is reframing and is authentic versus how do we recognize that our positivity is toxic, so to speak? Yeah. Okay. So I'd say, first of all, I think you need to get really in tune with that intuition, that gut feeling that basically indicates whether you're being your authentic self or not. And that can be a rusty feeling for some people because they can disregard it. But I think that's part of that reflecting piece is who are you inside? What are your values? Um, and generally, you know in your heart whether or not your your actions and your thoughts are aligning with that. Um, now, when it comes to toxic positivity, it's basically the idea that we're we're sort of always looking at the bright side and not acknowledging the struggle in our life or in in our experiences. And there's a harmfulness to that because what it does is toxic positivity minimizes struggle. It shuts that down. It takes away the, the capacity to feel messy emotions, which we're human beings. We need to feel the full spectrum of emotions and it's going to be part of our experience. And if we shut that down, then it comes out in maladaptive ways. It comes out in the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response, which is kind of this like this this ability to cope really well, maybe on the outside, but at the end of the day, it has a detriment to our overall health and well-being and our wholeheartedness, right? So it's a short-term fix, and it's often what we do when we're in struggle. Um, and then also the 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 um, the sort of feeling guilty about our emotions. I think that's a big part of the toxic positivity. So I think when you're reframing, if you come out the other side and, and you've maybe looked at something with more of a gratitude, you know, attitude, gratitude lens, um, that you're able to, and you feel like that's a helpful, a helpful lens through which to look at, you know, whatever struggle you're going through, um, Mm -hmm. that you don't feel like you're shutting down your emotions, that you don't feel, um, you don't feel like you're minimizing your experience. You're saying, yeah, this is a struggle and man, this hurts. But I will say I had a beautiful walk this morning and I can say my whole life isn't, you know, a disaster. This little piece is, but not my whole life, you know? And so it's just kind of creating a bit of like an anchor for yourself when you feel like you're, you're downtrodden. Right. Yeah. So it's just, I suppose, honestly recognizing the ups and downs, the struggles. So, so Morgan, if you were speaking to a group of, let, let's turn the lens here a little bit, because I know that school administrators, principals, assistant principals, they really strive to create positive work environments for teachers and, you know, want to create these kinds of environments, but it can often slip into that toxic positivity. So if you were to, if you were speaking to a group of principals right now, what advice would you give them? How would you guide them to understand the difference or, or how to create that positive climate without it becoming, um, you know, toxic and where there's a, a lack of understanding of what the truth is around what's going on? I'm so glad you asked this because this is actually something that's come up for me a few times. I've had mm-hmm. uh, leaders ask me to do keynotes and sessions for them and 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 sort of between our little conversation, they'll say, you know, these educators, <laughs> they are a handful and they're complaining a lot. We just need them to get back out there. You know, there's sort of that yeah. attitude and um, how I handle it, 
you know, I've, I've been asked, do you want me to shut off the, the comments if anything kind of goes, goes awry? And I, I always say no, like, I think people need to have their voice. Um, but I acknowledge the struggle before they do. And I think most of it comes down to, um, people just want to be heard and seen. So I think if you feel like resources are tight, most of the time that's outside of the the middle management's control and they're just as squeezed by that, right? And so I think just saying, yeah, you know what? This is a tough time right now. Many of us are struggling. What we can focus on for today's session is what's within our power to change and to alter and to craft. We can affect resources right now. That's not within our power, but we can look at this. And I think by doing that alongside educators, um, that it feels like, okay, we've heard the piece of struggle, we've acknowledged that, and we don't have to live there because that's a given. Now what can we do? And kind of this hopefulness, yeah. and I think it's, it feels a bit more inspiring when you're like, oh, you know what? We do get to have an impact, and and we get to be the authors of our school culture. We get There's a lot of things we can do without resources that that are powerful. And so I right. think being able to turn people's attention to to that sense of control and we need that sometimes, you know, I think mm-hmm. that's powerful. So that's been my response and it so far so good. So yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I think it's a, it's a hard thing for, you know, administrators and leaders mm-hmm. to, to walk that line between, you know, yeah. always trying to see the upside of down, trying to, to see the positive side without it becoming, you know, ignorant to what's really going on. And I think yes. that's an important line to walk. Um, what about an example? Maybe can you, can you give us an example of what reframing might sound like or might, um, you know, you know, whether it's a personalization thing or, um, you know, we have thoughts around permanence. You talk about in the book uh, pervasiveness. Uh, What's an example of where we might be able to reframe um, our thinking? Yeah. Okay. So this is one that I've heard a lot from educators is I don't feel very fun right now. Like I think a lot of teachers are feeling like they, you know, through COVID or whatever, it's been maybe a bit of a slog and they've lost that spark that, that kind of basically like identified them as a teacher and they're like, where is that spark? I don't feel that. Mm -hmm. And so working on that. So saying literally like going from, I don't feel so fun anymore to going, um, you know, I'm, I'm a focused teacher on, on the job that I have to do, or I feel like an effective teacher and then sort of stating, I want to, I want to infuse some fun and joy and creativity into my day and making that an intention. I think sometimes even just by writing things down, that can be, you know, sticking it on your wall on a postie and being like, this is an important piece. I want to laugh every day. There you go. There's your, there's your goal. Um, But when it comes to sort of that sense of resiliency, there's these three P's that we want to watch out for. So say if something bad happens to us, um, Let's say we have an altercation. Uh, well, maybe not an altercation, but you know, we get we have a parent, and there's a misunderstanding, and you get one of those ragey emails. Okay, um, it's very easy to to look at it as though with those three P's, which the first one is a permanence. So, oh my gosh. Um, this parent's always going to be mad at me. It's always going to be like this. The next one is pervasiveness. Every parent hates me. Pervasiveness just means it's everywhere, right? Every parent hates me. I'm never going to be good enough for these parents, but really it's just one, but then you kind of like overgeneralize it. Um, And then, and then the, the next one, hang on now I'm blanking on my last one. So pervasiveness and then um, personalization. personalization. Yeah. And then the personalized, thank you. The personalization is the piece where you go, Oh my gosh, it's all my fault. Like this, I'm the only one who ever gets the bad emails, you know, like sort of doing that, that if we look at life that way with those three P's, it can, it can be hard to overcome the struggle and, and, um, resiliency is just the ability 
and the, the rapidity with which we overcome challenges and adversity, mm-hmm. right? So if we right. can move through that in an effective way and go, you know what? It's not just me. This isn't my entire life and it's not a permanent thing. We can, right. we can work through this, you know, uh, that that's a more helpful way to reframe struggle. Yeah, it's uh, we really can get in our heads and and start telling ourselves stories about yes. uh, all of those different aspects about how things are permanent or they're pervasive or or it's like you say it's all my fault and uh, it's really hard sometimes to get ourselves and I think you give some great strategies in there for rethinking uh, our thinking <laughs> which is a, which is very important for us to do uh, the other thing I found interesting in the book uh, and this is again something I'd not thought of before was how you positioned goal setting. Um, as a way to combat burnout. So what does the research tell us about that? What, what's the connection between goal setting and burnout? Okay, so when you think about burnout, there's sort of a like a dissatisfaction with where you're at in the moment, I think deep down. It's kind of that sort of the, the, the tell, right? Is there something right. that inside is making you feel a sense of restlessness or dissatisfaction or frustration or deep sadness or, you know, that sort of thing. And so really when we look at like our needs as human beings, we have a need for a lot of different things, including, you know, we need that sense of certainty. We need belonging. We need variety in our life. We need all these things. We also need growth and we need contribution. And so if we're not growing forward a little bit, we can feel this, this stagnation. And if we're in a place where we're feeling that sense of restlessness or dissatisfaction, one of the most important ways to, to sort of tune back into who we are is through goals. And by looking forward and going, well, this is where I'm at. I'm not really happy with where I'm at right now, but I'd like to be here. And to note where you want to be. I think as human beings, we want more than anything to have meaning in our life, right? There's been a lot of research around that. And so meaning comes from that sense of a life lived through passion and inspiration. And so if we can look forward with excitement at our life and go, I'm going to author a different kind of future for myself than maybe the one that I've lived up until now, like the life that I've lived, uh, there's something really exciting about that. And so that's where the goals connect to our sense of well-being and then to our ability to fight burnout because we can dig ourselves right out of that dissatisfaction for the most part um, because a lot of it is within our control. And we can make a one degree shift in our in our life. And that can make a tremendous difference in, in our overall trajectory. You know, some of the goals that we can set for ourselves, even for me, I was surprised when I wrote down in 2017, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to start a podcast. I was like, I am okay. I have no business doing that. Um, (laughs) and then, and then, you know, like bit by bit, um, through consistency and discipline and, and by putting that for like, you do get to that if you really want it. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, there's something exciting about that. I think being able to be the author of your story and that's right. where it kind of ties in. Yeah. That intentionality, right? It's the yeah. idea that, that I, I, I think about my future self and, and what I want to accomplish and by in some ways making your goals public and, and by yeah. public, they might just be outside of your brain. They're on paper. And as soon yes. as they're on paper or you've typed them out, they tend to be more real. And we yes. tend to, we actually tend to achieve those goals, don't we? Does the research support that idea? Because we always hear that yeah. you set a goal. Most people tend to reach their goals. So yeah. is that true? Yeah, well, I guess from what I've read, yeah. basically, you, you first of all, you elevate your opportunity for success if you write it down. Just doing that alone is is a yeah. huge. Um, it just what it does is it brings your your conscious and your unconscious brain 
together in an intentional way. And so when you see it on the page, you say it out loud, you don't have to share your dreams with everyone either, because some people will also want to tap that down and it's a threat to them. So you don't have to share with absolutely everyone. You could share with one or two people who you trust and care for. But like I've had people who have done interventions on me who love me and it comes from a place of love, but they've said, these are too audacious. Like your goals are too audacious. And, and Mm -hmm. so you kind of have to be careful who you share your goals with. However, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's, there's sort of that intentionality and, and our, we have this thing in our brain called the reticulating activating system. And what it does is it, when you put something to the forefront of your conscious mind, Uh, and you focus on it, you'll start seeing it all the time. And your subconscious mind will start tuning into it, which sounds very woo woo, but it's true. Like, you know, when you, you know, you start, you say you're shopping for a car and you're like, oh, blue cars. Hadn't really thought about that. And suddenly as you're driving down the road, every second car seems to be a blue car. Like it's not because suddenly there's more blue cars. It's because Mm -hmm. you've opened your eyes to that more. And so goals are the same and, and it kind of, um, it'll work together in a, in a way that, that will, um, yeah, we'll, we'll push that goal forward. Yeah. That's, it, it's so true when you drive down the street, it's like you're, sh- you're shopping for a certain type of vehicle and all of a sudden everybody has that vehicle or yeah. a certain type of color or something like yeah. that, right? You, you, that intentionality, you start to see it. And, uh, certainly I, you know, so, so Morgan, can we go back to your story? I, I, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, violate anybody's privacy, but I'm curious when, when someone approaches you and says, oh, your goals are too audacious, your goals are too big. How did you handle that? Like, and I wonder yeah. sometimes why somebody would say that to anybody, why would somebody care that much about someone else's goals? But anyway, t- tell us a little bit about that. If you can, this is a very common phenomenon. And I think what mm-hmm. it is, is in a peer group, when someone is going outside of the group norm, it signals yeah. a st- a stressful or a threatening kind of behavior to the group. And this is like very, very old, like reptilian brain stuff, right? So it signals a threat. And I think if you're not aware, um, it's essentially just a fear, right? And so what, what these very dear friends of mine, two of them did is um, they put their fear on me. And that wasn't a fear for me. Failure was not a big deal. It's not that it's not a big deal. It was like, this might not work out. I went in with eyes wide open. Yeah, my heart might get broken. It's okay. I'll be able to pick myself up because I know how to do that. But for them, it was like, oh my gosh, what if this fails? And it feels like life or death. And so that's why when you think about people's intentions, it can inform the way you respond to them. So I wasn't angry. I said, okay, thank you. And, um, and it informed a little bit what they thought. It kind of informed how I would share some of the things. So I really didn't share my journey with them, which is too bad because in a way it kind of like, it does create a sense of distance, right? But but I think I, was, I wasn't angry, but it, it gave me information about the fact that they um, they were scared for me. But that fear, I, I couldn't have that on, on the things that I was doing. I, you know what I mean? So that was my response was, thank you, but I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that's it. And uh, yeah, that was my response. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. I, re- I remember back in 2011 when I resigned from my position at the school district and, and embarked on this journey and, and uh, thinking about all the different reactions from friends and colleagues. And now that you talk about that, it really does bring into focus some of the reactions. Um, you know, no, no one from my inner circle or, or what I would consider my close friends were really concerned at all. But when I, when I looked around, you know, different reactions that I got sort of on the second or third layer of friendships, if you will, or professional colleagues, it is interesting to look back and look through that lens about, because I've often wondered to myself, why, 
anyone will care so much about what someone else has set as a goal or, or an accomplishment. I don't, I don't know why you would care so much. So that idea of projection and that idea of putting fear onto other people and, and that yeah. it being almost a threat, like they don't, they, maybe there's people that don't want you to succeed because it shines a spotlight on what they're not doing or something like that. Yes. It's a really interesting human phenomenon, isn't it? Yes. I'm sure you've seen that too. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what it is. I like, I've heard people say like, I don't have a passion. I don't know. You know, I, yeah. I don't have that same thing. And I'm like, that's okay. You don't like you. My life is not your life. And the things exactly. that light you up, you don't have to apologize for. If you like being at home with your kids and that brings you great joy and that's something that you feel fulfilled, like, great. You know, and I yeah. think, um, I think it's that comparative, that, that comparison that gets us into trouble because then right. we're not, we kind of, we look around us and go, oh my gosh, should I be doing that too? And it's like not at all intrinsic within you. So right, <laughs> um, right, yeah. yeah. Comparison, comparison is the biggest killjoy. That's I right. Mean, just, we, when we compare schools, oh, that school's ahead of us, that school's behind us. We compare to colleagues, oh, she's a better teacher than I am. He's a better teacher. You know, this, this idea of comparison seems to always suck the joy out of life. Yeah. Uh, and l- unless it's done from a cynical perspective where an, e- an egocentric perspective where you think you're better than everyone else, yes. it just seems, and that is a joy sucker as well. So it just says, you know, let's just stop comparing each other or, yeah. uh, you know, pretty much yes. uh, all of that. You are your best thing. Like, I think that's exactly. the thing. And that enables you to have the courage to actually do these crazy things and, and follow mm-hmm. those dreams because no one else can do them like you, you know? Yeah. It's already exactly. been done. Podcasts have already been done, but not by you, you know? So I think there's, there's right. beauty in that. Yeah. Love that. I feel like I'm mm-hmm. getting the pep talk here too. That's good. <laughs> I, like that. <laughs> that. Uh, I can use it. All right, here we go. Uh, let's finish up uh, Morgan by exploring. You, we talked about this earlier. Um, you know, boosting our social connections and the idea of reconnecting. And you mentioned Michelle Borba uh, on page 110 of the book where you write that latent empathy, and you mentioned this earlier in the podcast too, latent empathy and compassion do no good. It's only when you harness that power and take action, that's when you change the world. But here's my question. We know, I think intuitively, that kindness is really how we change ourselves and how we change the world. But we all know this. Why don't we all do it? What is stopping us from taking that action or, you know, being more kind. It seems like people are more mean to one another nowadays than they ever have been. And I don't know if that's just the internet or whatever, but what stops us from, from taking that kind of action uh, with others? I think there's a couple of things. So I think when we come to the internet, if you're behind a keyboard, you can be pretty brave and there's a sense, there's a lack of accountability and you also don't really need to show up as your full self. And when you're not your full self, you almost dehumanize yourself, but you can easily dehumanize other people. And when we dehumanize other people, and we've seen this in like the most atrocious historical cases, right? That's right. when we can be our most inhumane because mm-hmm. when you start name calling, but then that can kind of escalate to other things, right? You basically mm-hmm. see somebody as other and like as an entity, as part of a group that you don't see as a human um, mm-hmm. or as part of you, you can do all sorts of things and rationalize it away. So that I think that's one piece, which we're seeing a lot with divisiveness around absolutely everything political right now. And so, um, so I think that's one piece, but I think the day-to-day stuff really comes down to fear. And I, that's my read on it is that we're, you know, often we're pressed for time. We, we feel like, and fear can manifest in different ways, as I mentioned before, but like we, we can put up walls and sort of have an aggression. And so when somebody say cuts you off in traffic, um, is your first response to go, 
man, maybe they're having a rough day or is it like, oh my gosh, I can't, like, rah, I can't believe they just cut me off and that's like a personal mm-hmm. slight. And so it kind of depends on your your perspective too, because if you see that as a personal threat, then you're going to respond um, aggressively, right? Or you might withdraw. Like there's all these funny things. Like, and and I think with anxiety often or, or, or the, the symptoms of anxiety, quite often we don't connect to that prefrontal cortex, which is our, our empathetic brain and like our decision-making brain and our communicating brain. So when we're in fear, we shut that whole thing down um, and it makes it really hard to connect to that. So we don't even see people as each other. We're just kind of living in survival. That's when we have a hard time connecting with each other and being kind, you know, and seeing the other person or seeing, having a generous assumption about where they're coming from. Like that's not a default because we're so in our own head. Um, But Mm -hmm. when we are kind, there's this oxytocin hormone that releases. And then that's the social bond that ties us together, right? That love hormone. And that counteracts the, the fear and anxiety, actually, like the cortisol is counteracted by oxytocin. So yeah, it's just better for us to be kind <laughs> in general. Yeah. yeah. In general. Uh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, listeners, the book is, guys, make sure we can see that. We're the light from burnt out to fired up. Order your copy today, <laughs> right now. I'm serious. It is a fantastic read. It's inspirational. Lots of strategies. And even though the topic can sound a little fluffy, there mm-hmm. is so much research in the book and so many uh, substantive uh, references that really do bring uh, the book to life. So I, I promise you, you will you will not be disappointed with the book. Okay, Morgan, as we finish Thank up, you. we got two questions left as we finish up our, our conversation. To, this has been fantastic. Um, Thank you. I think we're gonna have to do uh, we're gonna have to have you back again and maybe <laughs> do something else to try to to take some listener questions or something that uh, that can so you can help people uh, work their way through. So two questions left as we finish up. I ask everyone who comes on the podcast these two questions, and you could take uh, this first one in any direction you want to. But the question is educationally speaking. What keeps you up at night? Yeah, you know, as much as I think this book was kind of born born from, you know, my own sense of empathic distress, perhaps, um, I think I still really struggle with those kiddos who who have a hard home life, you know, and you can't fix it. And, yeah. you know, you reach out to the different, you know, social supports and all that. And, and really the only thing that you can affect is the space within your classroom and your connection that you have to them. So that keeps me up at night sometimes, you know, I just, you just want to, you just want to hold these kids and, and, um, and help make their life better than maybe it is sometimes. And, and obviously that's not everybody, but there are those moments where it just kind of breaks your heart a little bit. So that does for sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it, it is, it is tough. Uh, you know, I, you think about the, all of the situations and circumstances that some children come from and teenagers are living through, um, you just, it breaks your heart to, yeah. to, to see what they have to just, just to get to school, just yeah. to be present in the school. There's so much struggle that they have to go through. And it's, it's hard not to take that on for sure. That empathetic mm-hmm. distress for sure. Okay. Last question as we finish up. And uh, obviously you're someone who has been by many metrics, very successful. So the question is about success. If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you the question, what is your definition of success? Morgan, how would you answer them? I love this question. You know, I, I think it comes down to, are you proud of the way that you leave the interactions you have? Are you proud of the trail that you leave behind? And I think for me, that's what success is. Do people leave the interactions with you feeling better off, feeling inspired, feeling like the best version of themselves? And, Mm -hmm. and that to me is like the most important 
version of success, you know, because then it's like through your path that you're walking, you lift other people up and you bring them alongside with you and you help them to see the best version of themselves. And that is a wonderful thing. And it has nothing to do with money and it has nothing to do with possessions because you can't take that, but it's part of your legacy. So that's important to me, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a, a great definition of success and a great way to finish up. Uh, listeners, you can and should follow uh, Morgan on social media. Uh, her Twitter handle is at Morgan Michael. And just so listeners know, Morgan is spelled M-O-R-G-A-N-E. So you'll find at Morgan Michael on uh, Twitter. On Instagram, the handle is at small act big impact. And of course, you can uh, search out the www.smallactbigimpact21days.wordpress.com. That is a long uh, internet (laughs) handle, but a great, great website, great resources there. Lots of information about uh, Morgan. If you're interested in following up with her, uh, having her talk to your your faculty or your school, your district, et cetera, all of that there. And of course, I'll also put a link in the show notes for uh, two things. One would be the book. We'll make sure that people have access to how they can they can grab a copy of the book, uh, but also I'll put a link into your podcast, Kindsight 101. Um, you know, thank God it's Monday, uh, and, <laughs> and Morgan comes out with uh, some very inspirational and, and just uplifting messages. And I think that your message, or could not be more timely. Uh, I think that right now people are really feeling it, and uh, to have someone that comes along, not just to make us feel better, but to give us the strategies that are necessary to help us truly shift our mindset and keep perspective and get back to the purpose of this job and the way that we approach education, I think is truly inspirational. I, I just, I love every part of that book. I think you're making a huge difference to educators all around the world. So Morgan, really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. This was so much fun and it was a delight. So thanks, Tom. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to address something that has come up in a number of different sessions over the past few weeks as I've been working with a number of different groups of teachers on unpacking standards to create learning progressions that include the scaffolding of targets to meet the full depth and breadth of the standard. Now, first, terminology. When I use the word target, I'm referring to an underpinning, a specific skill or understanding or piece of knowledge that isn't the whole standard or outcome, but is certainly part of it, right? I often call those ingredients. They are the ingredients necessary to make the meal, but they're not the meal. So the meal is the standard. The meal is the outcome. The ingredients are those underpinnings. So it's a key definition, an essential formula, a specific procedure, an application, if we're talking about standards that are more sophisticated, right? So as we organize those targets in a meaningful way, it sort of scaffolds the learning toward the full depth and breadth of the standard. And I've talked about that a few times on the podcast in the past. But here's the question that's come up over the last couple of weeks as well. Tom, do we need to use our one through four score or scale for those learning targets or specific skills along the learning progression? And my short answer to that question is no, I wouldn't do that, and here's why. Now, four episodes back, I talked about my assessment mantra, assess because you have to, grade when you need to. And I talked about when you're assessing learning goals less than the full extent of the standard, the targets, that I would use that evidence formatively to provide feedback and not focus so much on the grades or the levels. I'm not saying never ever, you know, if you've got high priority standards or you're putting multiple standards together, there could be an occasional case to 
to use that evidence formatively and to provide a score. But generally speaking, the whole point of the underpinnings, the targets, is mastery or completeness, if you will. And all that's needed at the target level is feedback that describes for the students or suggests how they can move toward mastery. Because imagine if we've got a unit in history where we might be asking students to analyze primary and secondary accounts of a major historical event. We unpack that learning and realize there are some key vocabulary terms that they might need to know in order to do a deep analysis that we're designing for that experience, etc. What good does it do anyone to rate the students a two on the key vocabulary terms that they understand what some of the words mean? Are, are we just moving on? I mean, nothing's going to come together if they don't have a grasp of those key terms. You know, let's say, for example, we're talking about early 20th century history, right? Terms like capitalism and communism and socialism, if it, you know, all those key terms. If a student doesn't know the difference between all of that key terminology, there is going to be no deep analysis. Now, Obviously, you're going to judge the degree to which the student understands that terminology, but that doesn't need a number or a rating. What it needs is next steps toward full mastery or competence or completeness, right? So not only is it not needed to create robust criteria for each of those learning targets along the way, that's going to suck up valuable time. The success criteria is simple. You need to know what these terms mean, who these people are, what the formula is, what the procedure is, how to set up the experiment or whatever. We're not going to say, oh, you're a two. Um, okay, well, let's move on. Nope, that's not how it goes. Mastery. I, I mean, if we can call it that, I'm just using that term, you know, competence, completeness, whatever you want to call it. That is the only option with targets and underpinnings, like with the ingredients. If I'm baking a cake, I would never say, oh, good, you sort of have flour. No, I need flour and enough flour before I can even make the cake, period. I mean, even if you did rate them, what good is the rating? The learner needs to know how to reach full understanding. The rating is unnecessary and may actually interfere with the expectation of getting there because if you say on a scale of one to four, you're a three, the student might just say, eh, I'm good with the three. Now, if you wanted to create sort of one generic rating scale for certain underpinnings that consistently run longitudinally in most units, then I'm not going to argue with that, okay? I'm not going to, that's not, you know, a fight I want to have or an argument I want to have. But when we start grading the targets, you start to overemphasize the quantification of learning. And that's the opposite of where we need to be with our formative work. Remember, if you start scoring assessment evidence, it's going to look and feel and smell like a summative. You know, call it formative all you want, but many students are going to see the score and think of it as a summative experience. Again, assess because you have to, but just grade when you need to. Scaling the ingredients is pointless. See what I did there? <laughs> no, seriously, it's pointless because the goal is mastery. It's not an option that they not know or understand or be able to apply the underpinnings or the targets. We've got to get them there. Meeting sophisticated standards is hard enough when you have all of the ingredients necessary to make the meal. But when you don't have all of the ingredients or don't have enough of the ingredients, then making the meal is obviously exponentially harder, if not impossible. Now, I'm not suggesting this is easy. 
nor am I suggesting that the challenge is not much more challenging when students' attendance is inconsistent or other factors are inhibiting a smooth upward trajectory of learning. I get it. It can be really challenging at times. But if we just sort of score it and move on, then we can't act surprised when it all doesn't come together at the end. Mastery, competence, whatever you want to call it, not scaling is what's needed for targets if our students are going to have any chance of demonstrating the level of sophistication needed to meet the full depth and breadth of the standards. All right, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes as well for links for the upcoming professional learning events this spring and summer. Next week, my guest will be Mirko Chardon. Mirko is the co-author of the book Equity by Design, Delivering on the Power and Promise of UDL. He co-authored that book with Katie Novak, of course, who's been a guest on this podcast. So looking forward to that conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. But a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.